Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Simon Bailey has been a police officer for 34 years, serving predominantly as a detective in Kings Lynn and Norwich. In 1998, he was seconded to the National Crime Squad, and as Detective Inspector, he was responsible for managing covert operations at a national and international level, targeting serious and organised crime gangs. In 2000, he was further seconded to the Rosemary Nelson murder investigation in Northern Ireland for three years before returning to Norfolk as Detective Superintendent leading the Intelligence Directorate. In December 2005, Simon was promoted to the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent and became Head of Crime. In 2007, he led the Force Modernization Program and passed the Police National Assessment Centre in February 2009. In September 2013, he was appointed Chief Constable by the Police and Crime Panel. In January 2014, he became the National Police Chief's Council Lead for Child Protection Abuse Investigation and in May 2016 became National Lead for Violence and Public Protection. He has a Master's Degree from Cambridge, an Honorary Doctorate from Bedford University and in January 2016 was awarded the Queen's Police Medal for Distinguished Service. And a very warm welcome to Dr Bailey. How are you, Simon? I'm very well, thank you, Cathy. Thank you so much for you know giving us some of your valuable time this morning. I think that one of the things that we have in common is that we were both at the University of Cambridge for a spell and uh, criminology and the psychology of crime and criminal conduct is certainly something that we're both interested in. Very much so, yes, yes. I've just read out your bio, but you've got an extensive career, obviously, as a police officer. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm really interested in getting your sort of thoughts on some of the contemporary issues that have been exposed in recent times by a sort of a a, a variety of events. And certainly, most recently, I was giving talks in schools on Everyone's Invited, for example, which I think exposed, obviously, school cultures that normalized a variety of sort of practices that were going on in schools. But I think it made me go back and look at some of the information produced by the Internet Watch Foundation, for example. And then I came across their brilliant podcast and I heard you speak. And I even included some of the things that you mentioned within those podcasts, within my Everyone's Invited campaign. So I just wanted to talk to you about if we just start with that issue and what your sort of response was to it when you heard about it. Kathy, I, look, it's fair to say that I wasn't I wasn't surprised. I think we all knew this was taking place. I had given evidence to a, a Home Affairs Select Committee as, as far back as 2015 and, and highlighted that some of the challenges that, that we faced within the school's environment. And everyone's invited has simply shone a light. It, if you like, it's the zeitgeist of, of, of the moment. 
And, and ultimately what Sommer and her team have done is, is truly raise the profile of misogyny, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, online abuse within educational settings. But all I would say is, I think we would all recognise and we all have to acknowledge it's a microcosm of a far bigger issue in society. That's right. And some of the issues that it links to, certainly from my research, we can tell again that girls are disproportionately impacted, not just by violence or, you know, violence is endemic against women across society, but also looking at the way in which young women have had to navigate sexual abuse in childhood, again, disproportionately. I think back in, you know, again, a few years ago, as you've just mentioned, we seem to have, again, school-aged girls predominantly being targeted as well, not just in the street, but online. Yes, and the Ofsted uh, thematic review of what is taking place in schools in response to the Everyone's Invited Initiative has has really identified that that's probably one of the biggest problems that, that we face. It is the It's the online material that's being shared. It's the unsolicited receipt of nudes and and young ladies running the gauntlet on a regular basis of receiving those images of inappropriate suggestions and, and then ultimately, in far too many cases, sexual abuse. I think you've mentioned the sort of the concept of sexting, where children are asked to send, you know, naked images of themselves, etc., I think for a very long time, that was considered not that prevalent. And it was just sort of something that happened occasionally in schools. But it seems to be happening certainly much more regularly post-pandemic. Yes, there is no doubt that during the pandemic, it has been the perfect storm in terms of the risks, I think, of child sexual abuse and exploitation. We've seen a huge increase in the number of people that are going online to view pornography. And of course, more people are spending more time online, which means that they are at greater risk. So it is is that perfect storm. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever. And when you look at some of the most recent statistics that have come out of a survey of 200 young people aged 16 to 21, you know, 54% of girls were sent sexual pictures that they say were unsolicited. Now, that's a big, big number. And, And what has happened is, I think, lockdown, not being in school, not being within at an environment where the, uh, your parents are there all the time, teachers are there in terms of the safeguarding responsibilities, I think it, it is given would-be abusers additional opportunity, and I think it has certainly encouraged some inappropriate behaviour amongst young people in particular. You can just hear people listening to this going, you know, whose responsibility is this? Because from my perspective, I mean, the minute you put a smartphone in a child's hand or a, a laptop in their bedroom or give, you know, it requires a very serious conversation, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, very clear in my own mind on this. Parents, guardians have an absolutely critical role in knowing what their children are doing, knowing what their children are doing online and having the conversations with them about sex, pornography, sharing indecent images, that then has to be reinforced within schools. And I think head teachers and governors have really got to ask themselves the difficult questions about the culture that exists within their own settings. Are they challenging misogyny? Are they challenging inappropriate sexual harassment, sexual behaviour? Are they reinforcing, hopefully, the key messages that are being delivered at home? But there is also a far bigger challenge for us in that 
Uh, children on average, I believe, are spending 14 hours a week online. And what we have to be sure is, and as confident as possible, is are they safe and secure when they're going online? And I still cannot get my head around the fact that as a 14-year-old, you can go online and view pornography. That can't be right. And I think there have been attempts to put in age limits or some sort of age verification technology. We haven't quite got there yet, have we? No, we haven't. And unfortunately, that's not currently on government's agenda, but I think it's something that absolutely has to be looked at. And would you agree, as I'm sure you're aware, that there's been some very recent uh, research published in the British Journal of Criminology looking at first-time users, and we're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-olds, going online, and some of the the algorithms are driving them towards sexually violent pornography. It's not a sort of a, a magazine that may have been presented back in the 60s and 70s that children would have, teenagers would have flicked through. We're way beyond that, aren't we? Look, we are way, way, way beyond that. And I think you only have to read a small number of the everyone's invited testimonies to see so much, I think, of what young men are viewing online is then being carried out in the real world. And you only have to look at what is now is readily available in terms of the sexual violence, the type of sex. It's framing and shaping young men's expectations. And I think there is there's a real blurring of a line of what is healthy and what is normal. And actually, the levels of violence, some of the scenes that are being, that people are now viewing are pretty violent, unpleasant stuff. And you've only got to look at the, some of those testimonies just to think you're simply now carrying out what you've seen in a pornographic film. And I think as well, some of the research you've been involved with as well, there's a sort of a desensitization that you've picked up on, certainly among offenders who are abusing children. They've seen it all online and it's not having the required effect. So there seems to be a sort of a displacement into other types of activity, which might involve minors. Is that accurate? So in a number of cases... We are now seeing men that have become desensitised to mainstream pornography. Then, and this is one of the challenges, unfortunately, it's so readily available, but then starting to look at child sexual abuse material to then get their sexual stimulation. And a number of offenders and abusers are now referring themselves to people like Lucy Faithful Foundation, Stop So, Circles, and saying, look, I've been viewing pornography. I've walked the path where actually the pornography that I'm viewing becomes more and more hardcore. I've become desensitised to it. Now I'm worryingly starting to look at child sexual abuse material because that's the only thing that now gets me aroused. Now, we should be really concerned by that particular route to offending. And Simon, in your experience, do you ever think to yourself, is one of the reasons why we're not all sort of out on the streets angry about what our children are able to view? Is it because... Maybe parents aren't aware, for obvious reasons, what is in these sites. Because if they could see what some of these people are looking at, they might be out in the streets, you know, very annoyed that we uh, have access to this so readily. My, My greatest regret of the last seven years is undoubtedly that despite my very best efforts, I have not been able to move the public thinking upon the availability of child sexual abuse material, how easy it is to access it. And I've spent hours agonising over why that message hasn't landed. Because as of today, there's circa 20 million unique images of child sexual abuse on the child image database, child abuse image database. And I've reconciled myself to the fact that when you are talking about the likes of Facebook, 
that are probably one of the, the main sites where imagery is uploaded, viewed and shared. Sites like and companies like Facebook have become so embedded in our everyday lives that parents and, and people that even know what is going on in this space are simply turning a blind eye to it. And unless something radical is done, then unfortunately, it is just going to continue. And parents, I don't think, truly understand what is taking place in the digital space. They are now dealing with their children who, whom are now digital natives. And it's a, it's a massive, massive problem. But it's extraordinary to think that material like that can be used on Facebook because any person, citizen, would expect that it couldn't possibly end up on that platform because it would have been screened or noticed or how can that happen? It's not some encrypted platform. Well, it's not encrypted yet. And Facebook are by far the greatest referrer of child sex abuse material. Wow. To the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, but the bottom line is they are still not doing enough. When it comes to end-to-end -end encryption, they're going to be turning the lights off and not going to allow us not being aware of it at all if they do that. So the threat to children just grows exponentially. And what about other platforms? You know, which ones kind of keep you awake at night thinking, oh, they really need to uh, do more? Well, I, I think the bottom line is, Cathy, the vast majority of them, they all need to do more. They're not doing enough. And what you have is you just have profit being put in front of and prioritised over safeguarding, which, from my perspective, is just completely unacceptable. The other pattern that I think has emerged, which would surprise parents, is that a third of all content removed by the IWF in 2019 was self-generated, particularly among teenage girls aged 11 to 13. So yeah. they're in the bathroom, they're in these private you know, bedrooms, their parents are downstairs making the dinner, and they're responding to sexual predators' requests and demands. Yes, in some cases, but in, in other cases, there's also consensual sharing of images. That's the challenge that we face, that there are some children that are being groomed, as you say, in their bedrooms. There are some that are sharing images of themselves with somebody that they are in a relationship with, never thinking for one minute that once that image has been taken and shared, it's, they've lost control of it. So there are huge problems. And what is really worrying is that when the IWF have done their analysis, the age group that is having the most or the greatest number of images shared of them is the age group of, of girls that are assessed to be between 11 and 13 years of age which I think most people, again, would find quite horrific. That's right. And it seems to be the peak age of getting a smartphone on the point of university. And they're obviously in the thick of puberty as well. Yep. Is there any scope for sort of, I know Childline created a sort of an app, Zip It, where it's sort of the technology interrupts that kind of dialogue on your phone and says, wait a minute, you know, are you happy to share that? Is there any room yeah. for that, any hope attached to that kind of technology? Well, look, I think as we, you know, we need to explore device level blocking. We need to explore the technology that could prevent images like that being uploaded and shared. We should be looking at the technology that spots grooming in a, in a chat room. All those things are technically possible. And I think one of the things you said in a podcast with the IWF is that it was really shocked me was that the UK, I think, is the third biggest consumer of sexual abuse imagery in the world. Is that accurate? Well, no, we are the third greatest consumer currently of directed child sexual abuse in the Philippines. So that's that we are paying 10 or 12 pounds to direct the lifetime sexual abuse of, of a child in the Philippines and you direct that abuse, which again is just, I think most people would think is just horrific.
And have you seen changes in who the perpetrators are in terms of age group or particular offender type over recent years? Yeah, the, the offender type would, have seen, would appear to be getting younger. And I think it's then that connection to the, the whole debate about pornography and, the, and the, the readily accessible nature of pornography and the volume of pornography that's now being consumed on a regular basis. So if you were a parent of a 10-year-old child, what are the key things you would do immediately in your life to protect your child from some of these harms? I'd make sure that the device security settings are really robust. I'd be talking to my children about the importance of being open. I would talk back to my children about the importance of telling me if they're approached by somebody they don't know. I would talk to them about the importance of their body is their own body and it's not anybody else's and not to share it, or if anybody suggests that they touch themselves. All those conversations need to be had, I think, at, a, at, a, at an appropriate age, and it depends on the development of your child at which point in their, in their life you do that. But we need to be having these conversations in an open and frank way. And in terms of sort of early intervention, you just mentioned, I think, unfortunately, again, the statistics are pointing to younger and younger children as well, sadly, uh, being abused. So children off to nursery school, for example, again, it's very important, isn't it? The parents teach even a three or four year old about body boundaries and who can touch and who can't. It absolutely is. And that's why the NSPCC's Pants campaign is a, is a really good example of what the conversation that parents should be having with their children. What about parents listening whose child, 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, has sent or requested a naked image from another child? And the parents are afraid to, obviously it's a criminal offence to do that, which I think is the case. What would you advise them in terms of interacting with the police? You know, is it a good idea to tell the police so they give them a good shouting at? Or how do you think that sexting scenario should be managed? So, look, my my leadership of this has been very focused on making sure that we're not criminalising a generation of young people. And, and actually, Cathy, this is more around a, a conversation where when you speak to a child and you then explain to them you've now lost control of that image, there is every likelihood that that image will now be the subject of a, of a picture on a screen that a paedophile will now become sexually aroused to. They are mortified. And this is why it's so important to have that conversation because relationships and the way that relationships now take place has fundamentally changed since I was a young man. It bears no resemblance. We now have to accept that actually so much of what, of what takes place in terms of the of a relationship developing is going to take place in the online space and digital media is going to form part of that. I don't want to criminalise children that are, that are sharing images consensually with each other. It might be that we need to look at the law because I don't want to criminalise a group of young people. But what should be happening with those children is that this be made, be made very, very clear, the risks that they are taking, the fact that once they've sent that image, they've lost complete control of it. And yes, they're breaking the law. But then what I don't want to do is I don't want to frighten children to be afraid of the police. That is not what I want to do. It's important that if a child is in trouble, they have the confidence and the courage to come forward and report it to us rather than be shouted at. So I think there is a, there's a real balance here. And in, if you were the head teacher of a school, how would you be navigating messages around sexting? I'd be talking very honestly, very openly to all my pupils about the risks. I'd be talking to them about the loss of control of an image, of where it would then go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would be talking about the risk that it then presents to them in terms of them being potentially groomed or blackmailed. 
And unfortunately, too many children are having that done. Look at the case of, of David Wilson in Kings Inn in Norfolk. Groomed 500 young men. Those 500 young men thought they were sharing images of themselves with a young lady. They weren't. It's the deception. It's the abuse that is that is taking place thereafter that all children need to be aware of. And they, and they need to understand that the web is an amazing place and it is overwhelmingly there for good. But actually, there's a dark side to it. And don't fall into the, the trap of the dark side and the potential risks that there are on that part of it. So it is about digital hygiene, reiterating these messages, and they have to be reiterated consistently by lots of different adults in a child's life. Isn't that correct? That is absolutely right. There needs to be a consistent message which is being delivered at home, being delivered in school, being delivered in clubs, in sports environments. There needs to be a consistent message. And do you feel, I mean... I think I read April 2020, it was shocking to read it about the estimate is about 300,000 people in the UK pose a risk currently to our children. Can you just help me sort of unpack that? It's quite difficult to get your head around. Well, it's now been revised. So it's now anywhere between 550 and 850,000. So it gives you some idea of the true scale of what we're now dealing with. And when you say poses a risk to children, what does that mean? Well, they are people that would have a sexual interest in children. Now, at the, at the lowest end of the scale, and let me be very, very clear, I'm not condoning this in any way, but at the lowest end of the scale, there would be somebody that sat behind a computer viewing child sexual abuse material and becoming sexually aroused to it at the lowest end of the scale, right up to the worst end of the scale where there is physical contact, rape and abuse of a child. And there is then that vast swathe in between. And again, how are those assessments made? How do they come up with that number? So they, they have used an academic approach of, I think it's known within academic circles as, as capture and return. So it's then looking at the number of registered sex offenders that are on our, our books, then looking at offending rates and then doing the, the mathematical calculations but with also recognising that are actually there's an element of, of bias in that. I think it's plus five, minus five percent, which gives you the, the 95 percent confidence rates, which then means you have that big spread between 550 and 850,000. And I mean, you're, you're on the verge of retirement. What do you feel future generations of police officers or police organisations can What needs to happen in this space to improve things, given it all sounds a little bit bleak? Cathy, I... I'm always going to be glass half full. So I am always going to, to look on the brighter side. As a country, we are the best in the world at targeting online abusers. But there's a, there's a big caveat with that. The numbers just continue to grow so significantly that that feels quite hollow. All I would say is, the more so than, now, than ever before, I think there is a, a, a debate taking place. Everyone's invited has prompted a really in-depth debate about what is taking place in schools. Increasingly, government is saying to the likes of Facebook, this is simply just not good enough. And the online harms white paper, I think will give Ofcom the power to really hurt those companies financially, which is what they have got to do. So I see some really positive indicators on the horizon. We have done our best, but there is still an awful lot more that needs to be done. 
And it sounds like the heavy lifting, I mean, it can't just be done by the police or, or you know, I think there's, or schools, but it is about parenting and no, you know, and, and as you've hinted, it's about the relationship between you and your child and levels of trust and disclosure and creating a family culture where you're able to talk about anything. Look, it, it absolutely is. It's got, to, it's got to start at home. It's got, got to be carried on in educational settings, in clubs, societies, all those things have got to be reinforced and, and the, the message has got to be consistent. And what would you say are the best websites that any parent should familiarise themselves with or certainly schools? I mean, we've talked about the IWF, the Internet Watch Foundation, which I think is absolutely terrific and doesn't get enough sort of exposure for the fantastic work that it does, but also the Internet Safety Centre. What other organisations yeah. are good to have on the list? The NSPCC, Bernardo's Children's Society, the list goes on. There are some brilliant organisations, some national ones, some regional ones, some very local ones. Ultimately, a quick Google search of child protection, charities and organisations within your area will, will flag up those organisations that are doing some amazing work with some just phenomenal people that are, that are dedicating their lives to, tr to protect children. Now, everyone's invited also sort of exposed and highlighted violence not just sexual violence, but issues to do with violence against women generally. And I'm very interested in your your sort of thoughts, you know, on the verge of your retirement about violence against women. I think I'm sure you're familiar with the work of David Gadd, the criminologist who specializes in violence against women. And one of the things he was telling me, just as a reminder, that one in five women over the age of 16 will have been sexually assaulted at least once in their lifetime. It's very hard to, again, come to terms with that. It, look, it, it is, Cathy, and by far the greatest singular demand coming into my organisation every day is domestic abuse. And when I look at what police officers are now having to deal with every single day, their staple diet now is abuse, vulnerability and exploitation. And it is invariably women that are being the ones that are being exploited or abused or are vulnerable. And Increasingly, we are having to come to terms with, I, I think, a, a misogynistic society where domestic abuse is now by far the most prolific crime that's taking place every day. And the, uh, you know, some of the awful incidents that we've seen in the last few last few months, Sarah Everard being a case in point, has just shone a light on what what is taking place in that whole violence against women and girls agenda. And I think what's terrifying is that the, the perpetrators are a very diverse group of people, aren't they? You know, domestic violence isn't something that hides out in the most deprived communities. That's not the case, is it? No, look, it spans the whole societal spectrum. And increasingly, I think victims are saying, right, well, I'm not going to take this anymore and are coming out and reporting it in a way that they never, ever did. In the same way that they are reporting serious sexual offences. It's really good that there is now a focus and an admission by the Justice Secretary around the challenges around rape and serious sexual offences. The charge rates are shocking, and there's no, there's no other way of describing it. They are simply not good enough. And there is an awful lot of work that needs to be done in this space to address the, the system failings that exist. And do you think historically, what were the factors that led to those poor charge rates that damaged confidence that women had in the criminal justice system? When you, when you look at non-recent issues, the work that we are doing in the non-recent space, again, I think is exceptional. And we have a, 
we have a charge rate of, of, of 30 plus percent. That's in comparison to about 3% for current offences. But what we've had is an increasing confidence around victims coming forward and reporting it. I think more abuse is taking place, hence more offences coming to the fore. I think social media is driving and porn is driving a certain type of offending. And, and what we now have to do is the police service, the Crown Prosecution Service, the justice system now has to start asking itself some very difficult questions. How do we ensure that we provide the very best possible service to victims? And let's not ever forget that it is a person. It's not a number. It's not a case number. It's not a crime file number. It's a person. And actually, we've seen the testimony of a number of victims in the last few weeks where they have been let down by the system. We have got to address those failings and we've got to address it quickly. And do you feel like we are on the cusp of some sort of sea change triggered by everyone's invited, even though, as you say, so many of these issues have been looked at historically, but something feels a little bit different? I, I think everyone's invited has prompted, encouraged a, a really, really positive debate. And actually, if we now get to the point where every head and every group of school governors are asking the difficult questions and making sure the culture in their, their school is right, making sure the inappropriate behaviour is being challenged, then that can only be really, really good news. Now, Simon, I know you're on the verge of retirement after a fabulously long and varied career. I have to ask, are you? <laughs> do you feel like you're about to get sort of stuck into lots of different projects that you're interested in, or are you just going to have a, you know, a long break? No, I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of time off, but then I'm going to come back and carry on pursuing my passion for protecting children and protecting the vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you, you know, on behalf of all parents everywhere for the hard work that you've done to protect children all over the country. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.